wonderful. Thank you, everybody. Please take your seats. Happy Easter to you all. Good to see you here today at our five o'clock teaching. And uh, as Christian already mentioned, I will be taking the seven o'clock revival service this evening. And I'm going to be speaking about the God of Abraham because Abraham believed in God. And Romans 4 tells us that there was two aspects of God that Abraham really believed in. And that was that he gives life to the dead, resurrection, and that he calls those things that are not as though they were. And one of the things that we need to do is to move in resurrection power. Thank God for Resurrection Sunday. Thank God that Jesus is raised from the dead. But what about resurrection power in our lives and circumstances? You know, God places us in circumstances where we will often deal with dead situations, barren situations, difficult situations. God will often put us in places where we're seeing the opposite to what God's Word says. And that's where we need to learn the secret, if that's the right word, of believing a God who can raise things from the dead in our lives and also how to call those things that aren't as though they were by faith until they manifest. It, it, it will, it, it's a revolution of faith that God wants in our lives. And so often as Christians, we are, we're going, just going through the motions. We're praying hopeful prayers. We're hoping it's going to work out. We're distraught at the dead things in, in our circumstances where, where we're not seeing movement. We're concerned. We know what we'd like to see in our lives, but it's not happening. And it's because we're not connected to resurrection power by faith. So we're going to be looking at how resurrection power can flow in our lives and circumstances tonight. And I hope we have a really good time also of ministry for those that need ministry. Um, we launched last Sunday, as many of you who were here last Sunday would know, uh, my new book called No More Law, a study on Galatians. And this book is all about the basics of freedom in a Christian life. I, I am amazed at how many, well, not just Christians, but pastors have no idea what it means to live under grace and not law. Oh, so often from the ministry and from the pulpit and in people's lives, people take a bit of grace and then mix a bit of law in. But you know, there is an equation, and I put it in my book, grace plus law equals law. You can't mix Grace and law. I want you to be totally 100% free from the law. Free from legalism, condemnation, moralism. I want you free from the law so that you can live by grace through the power of the Spirit. And this is what this book is all about. And for you here at KT for this month, um, it's normally $12.99, but we're selling it at $9.99, £10. And if any of you want me to put a little Easter message in it at the end of the service, uh, we will have a table there. Some people like just as a memento for it to be signed, and I'll do that for you. We'll do that for the next couple of weeks until um, people have had enough. <laughs> then, we'll, then we'll move on. I don't get one penny of royalties from this book. It was my decision. Any royalties that come through this book go directly into Kensington Temple's outreach and work to Muslims in the Middle East and North Africa. So even if you don't like me and don't like the book, you can buy it <laughs> to release some funds into, into missions. Well, we are in the second of our series that I entitled, What If Jesus had never been born. What if Jesus had never been born? You know, so often we take, well, I want to say we, I don't mean you, but so often people take Jesus' contribution to the world for granted, especially in the Western world and traditional so-called Christian nations. We find that in today, we have uh, many people in, in politics and society saying, we don't want Christianity in our society. We don't want you wearing crosses at work. We don't want your religion in our schools. We don't want to teach on Christianity. You keep your Christianity indoors, private, 
to yourself. It's, we don't need your Christianity in society anymore. And there was a huge battle in, in nations like Great Britain and America over pushing out Christianity from society so that it becomes so private that it doesn't actually have any effect on anybody else. We've seen lots of cases over the last few years about people trying to stand up for Christianity and being told that, you know, to, to, mind, to mind their own business, you know. And so I, I want to teach on this series about, well, okay, what if there wasn't a Jesus? Or more positively, what is the contribution that Christ, his teaching, and his church has given to different areas in civilization from the beginning right up till the present date? I find that many atheists and and, and Great Britain has for many, many, many centuries been a Christian nation with revival after revival. This is my, this book I was mentioning is my second book. My first book is called uh, Land of Hope and Glory, uh, Revivals Through the Ages in Great Britain, where we start right in the Middle Ages or, and, and before with Augustine and the saints that brought Christianity, it's in Aden, to the nation. And we look at wave after wave of revival. And that when Britain was, was in its darkest times, often God would send a revival that, that would just take Britain back off its knees and stand it up again. And over the years, over that time, the Christian message and the Christian ethic has permeated every level of society that in the last hundred years people are trying to get it out of. And so it's important that we recognize where would we be without Christianity. And atheists love our charitable work. They love any, but they don't want Christ. It's like, you can help the poor, you can do all this, you can do all the good stuff, but don't bring us your Jesus. And they have to realize that if it wasn't for Jesus, there wouldn't be a church. If there wasn't for Jesus. And last week we looked at a very important topic about the dignity of human beings. We looked at how Christ and the gospel from our Jewish Christian heritage confirmed and affirmed that mankind, every human being, is made in the image of God. And we looked at societies without Christ and how people are not valued as being the image of God. And then we saw through the ages how Christianity has dignified uh, babies in the womb, children and orphans, how it's dignified women and the elderly because every single person is precious. Jesus would have died for you alone if you were the only human being. That's how precious you are to God. And that has influenced society, Christian societies, for hundreds and hundreds of years. And if you take that influence out, if Jesus had never been born, and then we looked at the type of situation that we would be in. And you know, you can go to some nations where Christianity has had very little impact, and you can see that many of the things that we value in our so-called Christian civilization they don't even know of in those civilizations. You want, to know, you want to know the benefit of Christ to Great Britain? Well, you go to some of these nations that aren't Christian and you find the appalling things that go on. So today, I wanted to, to move on to a new topic in this. And uh, the subject that I want to um, look at with you is what if Jesus had never been born, the positive impact of Christianity on giving mercy to the poor, mercy to the poor. One of Jesus' prime messages in the gospel was that it was good news to the poor. Jesus had a revolutionary message about how his followers should treat those that are disadvantaged, those that are on the edges of society, those with nothing should not be ignored. Instead, they should be Surprised. But before we go to Jesus' teaching and how that's affected uh, the world over the centuries, let's just go back into the Bible for a while and remind ourselves that the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament has a very, very special place for the widows, the orphans, the poor. These people, these types of people are on the top of God's list of concern, not on the bottom. So, Psalm 68 and verse 5, we're talking here about the nature of God is to have mercy on the poor. Psalm 68 verse 5, God is the father of the fatherless and the protector of widows is God in his holy habitation. 
God may be in his holy habitation, but he is a father. And he's first the father to the fatherless and the protectors of widows. That's a picture of those that are most vulnerable. I'm in the book that I wrote, No More Law, when I talk about how we are adopted in Christ, that the Father in heaven has adopted us by his grace. I give the story of the fact that I was adopted as a very young, um, four or five weeks old. I was born in uh, Gateshead, and my mother, my birth mother, she was 14 years old when she was pregnant with me. And in those days, it was the year before the abortion laws came in. And I thank God for that and that she was a Roman Catholic. So she didn't put me to the sword, if you like, but she kept me. She was sent away to one of these homes that they had while she was pregnant. And then uh, she had me at the age of 14. She had me and my parents, my current parents adopted me. And the story in the book, God was in all of it. And I thank God because here I am today blessing you, I hope, with God's word. I came from nothing. I was fatherless and God put his hand on me. It's just my little way of saying that God likes to take those that are nobodies. Those that, do you know, I wouldn't surprise me if the next revival came from all these people that, that, that society's given up on. That'd be just like God. So he's the father of the fatherless. That's who he is. A protector of widows. Psalm 103 verse 6. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. God sees oppression. And he wants to do something about it. Psalm 103 6. Psalm 140 verse 12. I know that the Lord will maintain the cause of the afflicted and will execute justice for the needy. Psalm 140, verse 12. We also see amongst the patriarchs, and one of the oldest books in the Old Testament is actually the book of Job. And I'd like you to turn with me to Job chapter 29. Job chapter 29. And in, of course, in this book Job has been afflicted by the enemy and he doesn't understand why he doesn't understand that actually this is a test that's going to glorify God and that God is going to come through for him at the moment he doesn't know what's going on and he's saying why has this happened to me one of the things he says is that you know I'm very close to God's heart because I care for the poor and needy like he does and Job chapter 29 verse 11 says this when the ear heard then it blessed me when the eye saw, then it approved me, because I delivered the poor who cried out, the fatherless and the one who had no helper. The blessing of a perishing man came upon me, and I caused the widow's heart to sing for joy. I put on righteousness, and it clothed me. My justice was like a robe and a turban. I was eyes to the blind, and I was feet to the lame. I was father to the poor, and I searched out the case that I did not know. I broke the fangs of the wicked and plucked the victim from his teeth. You see, Job speaks about him clothing himself with righteousness and justice. And Derek Prince makes this point very powerfully in one of his sermons. That this righteousness and justice that Job clothed himself was to reach out to the fatherless and the one who had no helper. To deliver the poor that were crying out for help. To, to help the widow. To, to, to be eyes for those that are blind and feet to those that are lame. He was a father to the poor. In the same, in the same book, Job chapter 31 verse 16. Again, Job saying, look, what have I done wrong? I've done nothing wrong when it comes to looking after the poor. Job chapter 31, 16. If I have kept the poor from their desire, or caused the eyes of the widow to fail, or eaten my morsel by myself so that the fatherless could not eat of it, but from the youth I reared him as a father, and from my mother's womb I guided the widow. If I have seen anyone perish for lack of clothing, or any poor man without covering, if his heart has not blessed me, and if he was not warmed with the fleece of my sheep, 
If I have raised my hand against the fatherless, when I saw I had help in the gate, then let my arm fall from my shoulder. Let my arm be torn from its socket. This is way, way back in history. In a time when in other nations, the poor were despised and forgotten. And let look at this man, Job, one of the ancient fathers, the patriarchs. And one of the characteristics of him and his life and his following God was care for the poor. Even the law of Moses, I said no more law, but the law was good. It's just that nobody, but nobody could live the law to get saved. The law came for two things, by the way. The law came to reveal sin and all its sinfulness, number one, to reveal sin. And number two, the law came to restrain sin in an unruly Israel until Jesus came. But the law also has had, had thought for the, the poor and the needy. In Leviticus chapter 19, for example. Leviticus chapter 19 and verse 9, it says, When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not wholly reap the corners of your field, nor shall you gather the gleanings of your harvest. And you shall not glean your vineyard, or you shall not gather every grape of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor, for the stranger, I am the Lord your God. And then verse 15. You shall do no injustice in judgment. You shall not be partial to the poor nor honor the person of mighty. In righteousness you shall judge your neighbor. You shall not go as a talebearer amongst your people, nor will you take your stand against the neighbor. I am the Lord. And so here's a picture of ancient Israel were there to look after the poor and to make sure that they, that they were blessed. Also, when we go to the prophets, let me just give you a picture of this. The prophets could see outward religion and see that outward religion itself, conformity to sacrifices and worship services, was not enough. That wasn't what God was really looking for. If you turn with me to Isaiah chapter 1 and verse 16. Isaiah 1, 16. Isaiah 1.16, wash yourselves, make yourselves clean. Put away the evil of your doings from before my eyes. Cease to do evil, learn to do good. Seek justice, rebuke the oppressor, defend the fatherless, and plead for the widow. Again in Isaiah chapter 58 verse 6. Isaiah chapter 58 verse 6, a very famous proclamation is this not the fast that I have chosen to loose the bonds of wickedness to undo the heavy burdens to let the oppressed go free and that you break every yoke is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring to your house the poor who are cast out when you see the naked that you cover him and not hide yourself from your own flesh then your light shall break forth like the morning. Your healing shall spring forth speedily. And your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of God shall be your rear guard. Then you will call and the Lord will answer. You shall cry and he will say, here I am. So we see again the prophet speaking into the religious life of the nation. And saying, Do you know what all the religion, all the things you're doing, the sacrifices, your fasts. This is the fast that God wants, that you feed the hungry, that you clothe the poor, that you shelter the homeless. These are the things that are close to God's heart. And I haven't got time to go right through a theology of the poor in the Old Testament. But you can see with just a few of those verses, can't you, from the fact that God is a father to the fatherless. That the patriarchs of the Old Testament had a special thing in their heart because they knew God loved the poor and the needy. And the law made, made sure that the poor and needy were looked after and the prophets spoke upon their behalf as well. And then we come to the New Testament. And you know, even John the Baptist in Luke chapter 3 verse 9, who was preparing the way for Jesus, even he could not but help about the talk about those that were 
in need. Luke chapter 3 and verse 9. He says, John Baptist preaching, And even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Therefore every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So the people asked him, saying, well, what shall we do? They're saying, what do you want us to do? John the Baptist is baptizing people in water, preparing people for Jesus, and he's saying, I want a change in your lifestyle. And the people are saying, well, what do you want us to do? How can we show that we're serious about following you and the Messiah that you're proclaiming is about to come? Verse 10, so the people said, what shall we do then? He answered and said to them, he who has tunics, let him give to him that has none. And he who has food, let him do likewise. Then the tax collectors came and baptized and said to him, what shall we do? He said, collect no more than what is appointed for you. Likewise, the soldiers. And he said to them, do not intimidate anyone or accuse falsely and be contact content with your wages. So there we can see a picture of John the Baptist preparing the way for the Lord and he's saying part of you getting ready is to clothe those without clothing and to feed those without food. In Luke chapter 14 verse 12. Jesus in this parable says, and then he said to him who invited him, when you give a dinner or supper, do not ask your friends, your brothers, your relatives, nor your rich neighbors, lest they also invite you back and you be repaid. Listen to this. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the maimed, the lame, and the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you shall be repaid at the resurrection of the just. And Jesus himself, he said, look, he says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me to preach the gospel to the poor. Now, I know that can mean the general people, but also there's a heart right from the beginning. The gospel is there to benefit the poor, the needy, not just the spiritual poor, but the material poor. I mean, think one of the greatest parables that's had uh, echoed throughout the church for 2,000 years is the, the parable of the Good Samaritan. I mean, think of one of the charities that is based in that, that the Samaritans today. And you, if you're feeling suicidal or, or you just can't cope, you can always ring the Samaritans and there'll be somebody there to help you. That charity was based on this parable. And in the Good Samaritan, you see this, this wonderful situation where the only person that helped was the Good Samaritan. All the priests and everybody else just passed by. But the Good Samaritan, we see what happened, what took place about tending the person that had been, been beaten up, about tending to the wounds medically, about paying for the accommodation so that person could be restored. And then in Matthew chapter 25, verse 34, Matthew 25, well actually I'm going to, I'm going to read it, because in Matthew chapter 25, verse 34, we see what church history is called Christ's poor. Christ's poor. Matthew 25. I mean, there's no point in me talking to you about what the church has done in history if we haven't had it rooted in Scripture. Because that's what the teaching of Christ, the Old Testament, that's what has driven Christian compassion for 2,000 years. Matthew chapter 25. Okay, well actually I'm going to read a bit earlier um, from verse 31, Matthew 31. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the holy angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate them one from another as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. And he will set the sheep on his right hand but the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right hand, Come, you blessed of my father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. 
I was a stranger, and you took me in. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and take you in, or naked or clothe you? Or when did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And the king will answer and say to them, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did it to one of the least of these brethren, you did it to me. And so this is Christ's point. In other words, throughout the history of the church, there has been an understanding that to minister to the poor is to minister to Jesus himself. Do you know when you minister to the needy, either directly in helping people or if you give to charities or or give to the poor for whatever means, do you know you're actually ministering to Jesus? For many years now, I've always kept a place in my life for giving to the poor on a regular basis. Who and what? Well, that's my business. But I've always kept a place for giving directly to the poor and needy in certain charities that mean a lot to me because I understand that this is this I mean in the end look according to this parable and you have to see parables in context with other parables when the nations are assembled before Christ the nations that are left after the battle of Armageddon the nations are going to come to Jesus and these these nations these that Jesus is speaking to aren't Christians do you know that because Christians know this parable I've just taught it to you when Jesus returns, you won't be, oh, when did we feed you? When did we? What, what are you talking about? You know this parable. You'll go, oh, as soon as the Lord says that, you'll go, oh, we know what you're talking about, Lord. It's the parable. It's the, it's the, uh, the poor. It's the Jesus, it's Christ's poor. But these people are going, what are you on about? When did we help you? When did we? And Jesus says that, you are going, that these nations are going to be separated on the basis of the poor, the hungry, the, those without clothes. Those, isn't that amazing? You know, thank God for every part of the Bible that we teach. But I hope you can see today, this stuff on the poor, it's not a side issue, is it? It's not like, okay, we'll do what we do. Oh, and when we have time, we'll remember the poor. We'll do something here and there. It's quite nice to have a a ministry to the needy or the poor or every so often to do something for them. Can you see how central it is in just these few verses? So central, it's going to decide issues of nation judgment. I think that's something that we need to meditate on and let soak into our hearts and think, God, what about us? And, And these teachings and And so much, I mean, think of Jesus and he's touching the lepers and he's feeding the hungry and he's reaching out to the prostitutes and and, and he's he's, he's healing the widow's son when he's there in the uh, coffin being taken to the funeral and the widow knows that she's going to go on the begging list. Why? Because it was her son that kept her and he has compassion and he brings the son back so that the son can provide for his mother who's already left her husband, the incredible revelation of God by the angels, not to the kings and the priests and the millionaires, but to some poor shepherds on a mountain. Do you know, the shepherds were, were, were of the poorest of the poor in those days. If you were dirt poor, then you would be a shepherd. We're not talking about King David, who, whose father owned a flock. We're talking about these shepherds who were hirelings. And so we see this, James chapter 1, verse 27, one of the most powerful scriptures James 1.27, really echoing what we listen to from Isaiah, talking about what pure religion is. James 1.27, religion that is pure and undefiled before God. Sorry, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Well, often we preach about being unstained, don't we? Be holy, you know, repent, walk away from your sin, get deliverance, go on living free, all these things, get holy. But how about the context in this verse? 
keep one to keep one's unstained from the world is also a pure undefiled religion is the, is the heart of god again the orphans the widows the needy the poor think of also acts chapter 7 well oh sorry um acts chapter 2 we find that it, the early church it says that they acts chapter 244 if you want the reference acts chapter 244 it says that they held everything in common and people sold things as they needed to give to people that were in need. So right there in the earliest part of the newborn church, one of the main distinctives, as well as the meeting daily in the temple and each other's houses and breaking bread and, and prayer and giving themselves to the apostles' teaching, also there was sacrificial giving and that giving was to minister to the needs of the needy. I mean, Ananias and Sapphira. I mean, they were caught up in this selling to give. I mean, it was part of the revival. It was let's sell and give and lay things at the feet of the apostles so that we can minister. So those that were getting saved, they may have been poor when they were getting saved, but now they, had, so they were saved, they had people to look after them. And Ananias and Sapphira, of course, got judged because they lied about what they gave. But let's not forget, it must have been a pretty big culture of giving for them to want to wanna get in on it even with bad motivations. Also, Acts chapter 7. Think about the deacons. Do you remember the apostles? The apostles were actually getting too involved in ministering to the poor and the needy and the widows. They, I mean, th this was so on their heart that they were getting so involved in meeting people's po poverty, food need, that in the end they said, we can't be doing this anymore. We're doing this. So the, it's not like the apostles didn't care about it. They were the ones that were doing it. But they're saying, look, I can't keep doing this anymore. I, I need to preach the word and get in prayer. I need, we need to take the church forth, far, further to the ends of the earth. And as much as I've been involved in helping the widows, can we have some other people, please? Well, what sort of people should we look for to minister to the needs of the widows? Well, men that were filled with the Holy Spirit. So it was like, find the next best people that move in the gifts of the Spirit. And Stephen, great Stephen, the first Christian martyr of Acts, he was one of the deacons. And I tell you what, deacon in this context has got absolutely nothing at all to do with religious deacons today. God deliver us from Pentecostal deaconism. It's meaningless because these men were at the forefront of revival. Powerful in spirit. Forefront. They were next to the apostles. There weren't people that didn't have an anointing. There were people that were right there on the forefront. It's got nothing to do with the present thing of like, you know, deacons. God deliver us from religious Pentecostalism. I put a bit, lot of that in that book, No More Law as well. So I've given you a feel. Now, this, you can feel the weight with just a few scriptures of the importance in the early church, Old Testament, New Testament, Jesus, of the poor. And I could teach you a whole series. Maybe we'll do a whole series one day on the poor, the needy, here at the five o'clock. I think I'll remember that. We'll do that. I'll speak to Colin about that. That would be excellent, wouldn't it? And because there's so much. I just scratched the surface, but you can feel the weight, can't you? I can feel, you can feel the weight in the spirit of the importance of these issues. But it didn't just stop in the early church. I mean, I mean it, didn't, it didn't stop there, but it moved on throughout history. As Christianity grew, so did ministry to the needy and the poor. There's a, a famous saint called St. Lawrence in the 3rd century. That's in around 200 AD onwards. And um, he was... He was a, a, a strong Christian with a strong heart of compassion for the poor and needy St. Lawrence was. And uh, one of the Roman governors where he was told him during a time of persecution to bring out the treasures of the church to himself. In other words, he wanted him to go into the treasury of the local church, bring out the gold, bring out the civil and bring it to him as tribute. And instead of bringing gold and silver and material wealth St. Lawrence turned up at the door of this governor, 
with a whole host of the poor, the downtrodden, the lame, the blind, the hurting. And he said, behold, the treasures of the church. Isn't that beautiful? Yeah, that's right. What a, what a, what a beautiful, isn't that the, the treasures of the church? Oh, it would be my prayer today that if you forgot anything else that I said, that you would think of the poor, the needy, the orphans, and the homeless as the treasures of the church, the precious treasures. Doesn't this build a lot on what I was talking about last week, about the image of God, about how Christianity through the gospel and authentic Christianity through the ages has always hold the greatest value and esteem on all human life, all human beings or treasures, but the poor, the needy, those that can't help themselves, they are the most precious treasures in the church. The early Christians were known to be givers, not just now today, when you are great givers here at Kensington Temple, but giving was very, very much part of Christianity from the early years I mean, how many of you have, have read in Corinthians and Thessalonians where Paul raises money, doesn't he? Right early on in Acts, Paul raises money for the famine that's in Judea and takes the money from other churches. This is a very, very um, early church, but he's taking money. And Thessalonians and Corinthians is saying, look, I'm asking you for an offering. I'm asking you to sow. I'm asking you to give so that we can help the poor in Jerusalem. You'd think he'd be too busy church planting and saying, I'm taking money. We've got to help those that are in need. Thank you for your generous offerings, he said to them. <laughs> and they gave, not, they gave willingly and joyously because when they gave, they were giving to Christ. Dr. Kenneth Scott of Yale said this in his book on, on early Christian giving. The Christian community stressed the support of its widows, orphans, sick, and disabled, and of those who, because of their faith, were thrown out of employment or imprisoned. It brought back men who were put into slavery for their faith. It entertained and looked after travelers. One church would send aid to another church whose members were suffering from famine or persecution. In theory, and to no small degree in practice, the Christian community was a brotherhood bound together in love in which reciprocal back and forth material help was the rule. Emperor Justin, Justian, Emperor Justian in the mid-fourth century, that's in the 300, still very early on. He was called Justian the Apostate because uh, he tried to get rid of the Christian church. And he was annoyed because the Christians were having a reputation of looking after all the poor in the city and people were noticing it. Justin said this, For it is disgraceful that when no Jew ever has to beg and the impious Galileans, that's his word for Christians, so let me read it again, and the impious Christians support both their own poor and ours as well. All men see that our people lack aid from us. Charity was virtually non-existent before the Christians began looking after the poor because there wasn't a theology of looking after the poor. Many people in other religions thought, well, the, the poor, you know, that's their fault. They're under some sort of, sort of curse. They didn't have the value of human life that we spoke about last week. Constantine, the first Christian emperor, he did lots of things wrong, but he also did lots of things right. In the middle of the, th of the third century, he supported church charities and church outreaches to the poor. And in fact, during, during that time, it was the church that was expected to look after the needs of the poor and needy. Into the Middle Ages, the church also was renowned for its help of the poor. Let me just read you a section from this book, which has inspired me for this course, What If Jesus Had Never Been Born by James Kennedy. You can't get it at the bookshop, but you can get it on Amazon if you're interested. Charity in the Middle Ages. Throughout the centuries, there's been a perpetual witness on the part of Christians to help those in need. During the Middle Ages, monks 
who carried on the practical Christianity of their day, helped the poor on a regular basis. They lived very modestly and they worked the land that they had cleared. And they cared for the needy in their area, including orphans. Will Durant says that the church's charity to the poor achieved new heights in the latter part of the Middle Ages. Virtually all parts of society were helping the needy, including individuals, guilds, governments, and the church. Feeding took place at the gates of barons' estates. Why would they feed people at the gates of people's estates? Does that right remind you of a parable? The parable of Lazarus? Remember, he wasn't fed at the gates of the rich man, was he? And we know the parable of the... Well, that parable affected the rich barons. And so at their gates, they thought, we're not going to make the mistake that the rich man did who ended up in hell, where Lazarus ended up in paradise. We're going to go to our gates, and we're going to make sure everybody that's needed is fed. That's the Christian gospel. That's Jesus influencing rich people in the Middle Ages, who if it wasn't for Christ and the message of the poor, wouldn't give us stuff. I mean, they were pretty hardcore in the Middle Ages, you know that. I mean, they, were, they still had a lot to learn about love and grace in the New Testament. So they weren't like, you know, the, the best examples all the time of, of Christians. But I tell you what, in some of these areas, they, they surpassed us today. A quarter of tithes of the local parish was commonly set aside for helping the poor and the sick. The poor and the sick. In the Middle Ages, that's from about A.D. 400 to 1400 or 1450 when the uh, printing press, when the printing press was invented in 1445, that's when they normally stopped the Middle Ages because now we have the incredible print that also brought in the Reformation. So 400 to 1450, the Middle Ages, hospitals, orphanage were began by, by, by monks. You had special monasteries with specialists. Do you like we have specialist hospitals today? Um, they were known, the early, the early uh, monasteries in the French, they were known as hotels Dieu, hotels of God. They had special monasteries that looked after the elderly. They were like nursing homes. Special monasteries for the pregnant. They were like nursing uh, home, homes, maternity wards. And they had special monasteries for abandoned children. People always knew when they were traveling that they could find the local monastery. And they would be given bread, bed and board and fed and looked after. You had great movements like the Franciscans. Have you ever heard of the Franciscans? St. Francis, 1182 AD. And uh, he, he, he gave up great wealth. Great wealth. Gave it all up. And he launched a movement to help the poor, the sick, and the aged. And they're still doing it today, a thousand, nearly a thousand years later. They're still doing it. In the 12th and 13th century, we had things like the Knights Hospitallers. Not just Knights Templars, but the nice Knights Hospitallers. They were good guys. And they would go around making hospices, the people that were dying, caring for the sick and the pilgrims. Isn't that wonderful? In a, in, in a tough time. With battles and wars. And as I said, a lot of civilization still had to take place. But look at this. This is a direct witness of the influence on Christ in the Western world. Then we have the Reformation in the 1500s. Luther and Calvin. And the Protestants too saw Jesus' bias towards the poor. Luther instituted in his church, and it was copied all over Protestant Europe, what we call the common chest that was based on uh, Acts chapter 2, as, we, uh, as, as we, um, we mentioned earlier, Acts 2.44. And into this, the community would put food and clothing. You know, you, some churches, my mum's church, uh, just out in um, uh, Chesham, my mum's church has just began a food bank. Have you ever heard of a food bank? And lots of churches are doing this. And it's incredible. Social services sending people with tickets and needy families. Down to the church. Uh, food that they wouldn't have without it. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. And in those days, the Reformation, they had a common chest, food, clothing, for the money for the needy. Right through. And then a glorious period of care for the poor in the 1800s and the Victorian era. You know when in the Industrial Revolution hit Britain, 
It brought a lot of wealth, but it brought a lot of pain. And that's where you've got the Dickens, you know, Dickensian Britain, where the, the children are living on the streets and people are working in horrendous conditions in factory. And it's like the people have forgotten the dignity of human beings, but not the Christians. And when I say Christians, I mean the authentic Christians. When I'm talking about the influence of Christ through his church in this series, I'm talking about authentic Christians. There's plenty of people that called themselves Christians that didn't give a stuff about the image of God, didn't give the stuff about the poor. I'm talking about authentic. May we be authentic like they were. Do you know it's common knowledge that in 1840, 70% of the working class had basic literacy. 70% in the, in, 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 because of what? The famous Sunday schools. Sunday schools were not just there to teach about scripture. They were to teach people how to read and write so that maybe they could get out of the slums, out of the factories and maybe get themselves a clerk job or a job in a, to help them get a foot up that they would never get without education. When this church, Horbury Chapel, was, um, was, uh, was planted, I can't remember, was it planted in the 1840s or 50s? There's a stone right outside that tells us, so I can't remember, have a look, outside there's a stone when Horbury Chapel, this was an outreach from a Presbyterian church in Kensington Temple as, as this place was, was, was being built in Notting Hill Gate, yes beautiful rich houses like either side but also just a few blocks down, poverty beyond measure and this church was built to reach out to rich and poor. And um, just next door to us, you, you see what used to be part of the church, and then it was a ballet school, and now it's a house. And that was Horbury Chapel's Sunday school. And it wasn't just for Sunday. It kept the kids off the street. It taught them the word of God, and it taught them how to read and write so that the poor people in this area had an opportunity. What other opportunity would they have? There would be no opportunity for them. By the 1865, in London, in London, there were 600 ragged schools. They called them ragged schools because everybody who attended was ragged. Three quarters of the voluntary societies in Victorian era were Christian. You think of the Salvation Army with William Booth. They didn't just preach the gospel. They fed the hungry. They clothed the poor. And that was as much as their message as you must be born again. William Booth said, you can't preach the gospel to a man on an empty stomach. We think of the Church of England's version of Salvation Army, the church army that did similar and does similar work. We think of Dr. Bernardo's that I mentioned last week, that, that out of a Christian conviction of the gospel, Dr. Bernardo began these homes for street children. And his passion was that they would be saved. And his passion was that out of the dregs of society, he would raise up preachers and ministers of the gospel. We think of Christian aid today. We think of the Red Cross also. You think of the Red Cross and everything it does all over the world. It was birthed in the gospel in the late 1800s. And today as well, the heritage of food banks and local church helping mothers and pregnancy clinics and all these things. If you took out Christ, if Christ had never been born, civilization in these Christian, so-called Christian nations would have been totally different. If you don't believe me, think about the nations that aren't Christian. Think about, think about the poverty in places like India. And it's not because they're a third world. When this nation was a third world nation back in the medieval times, they were still doing it. But you think of India and its history of, of religious caste system, where people were put at different levels and, and those that were the lowest of the caste, again, were treated as non-human. You think of the slums that are there today in India and you think of the Billions of pounds. You think of India is racing up the lead of wealth, isn't it? And yet Britain is still the one that's giving money to the poor. And people are complaining about that. Have you read that in the newspaper? Why are we giving money to India when India is getting richer than us? Why? Because of our heritage. This is what we do. We give to the poor. It's part of national life. It wasn't just the Christian gospel, but it permeated through the whole nation. 
people think that Britain is a giving nation because it's a giving nation. It's a giving nation because it was Christian for so long. So you get these wonderful BBC things, children in need and millions and millions of pounds. And, and, and giving even during a, a hard time. And people say, oh, it's just, just the British nature. It's not just the British nature. The British nature is no different to the Indian nature. It's no different to the Egyptian nature. I went to one of the worst, in fact, it was labeled the worst slum in the whole of the world. I visited in 1990 called Garbage City, just outside of Cairo. Absolutely appalling. And most of the people that are in that are Christian, pushed out over the centuries into that area and forgotten. But God has not forgotten them. And in the middle of the most appalling place on the planet Earth, in the midst of it, there is a church, an indoor church that seats 5,000 in, in, in like a, you, you go into a cave and it's a 5,000 seater. And an outdoor amphitheater of 20,000. And you can't get there unless you go right through the streets of Garbage City. So, you know, the Muslims just leave it alone. It's a no-go area. Right in the middle, there's hospitals as the Coptic Christians and priests are ministering, not just in, in the need for the poor, but they're also ministering in healing and miracles. Praise God. So, I hope today that not only have I shown you God's love for the poor and the message of the gospel for the poor and giving you a few examples of what has happened. And like I said, if you don't believe me, just compare our nation and our heritage and our values with those of non-Christian nations and you'll see a stark difference. And the atheist is wrong. We would not be as we are in this society with education and the poor. We just wouldn't have evolved. It's like, oh, well, we, we'll have your charity, but we don't want Christ. We'll look after the needy, but we don't want Christ. I'm a, someone says, I'm a socialist. I'm a communist. I care for the poor. You look at real communist nations. The poor are not looked after. It's Christ. So may this message encourage you. May it also challenge us that we should carry the torch for the needy and the poor as Jesus did. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God bless you all. Amen.